All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 8th day of August 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks and that you can subscribe to my letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office in New York City during normal work hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter. Go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. Chen is returning from a prolonged vacation with his family in Europe, and uh, he'll be back soon. I hope to have him on the show sometime. We haven't had him on in a while, sometime in the near future, hopefully. Do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises. We've got a number of them coming our way recently. We're thankful for all of the provocative ideas that come our way. Uh, we like ideas that are not necessarily our own, and uh, challenging ideas are always welcome. Questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com is the place to go uh, to send us uh, those, uh, those comments. We do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are in resources, Bonterra Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Great Bear Resources, Klondike Gold, and Novo Resources. And we will be talking to the CEO of RN Resources in just a few minutes from now. I should like to mention that Northern Empire Resources, which had been a sponsor as recently as last week, well, it was planning to continue on as a sponsor. However, last week, we uh, came to the announcement that it has agreed to a friendly merger with Core Mining. Northern Empire was covered, uh, has been covered in my newsletter, and with this merger, I will still, I will be covering that company through my coverage of Core Mining, because I believe that the acquisition of Northern Empire uh, with Core it makes Core a stronger company, and uh, I think together uh, it should work out very well for both, for both companies. Uh, if you happen to own Northern Empire. You, I would invite you to follow that company continually through my coverage of CORE. Again, it's miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com to sign up. I've titled today's show, Valuing Gold in a World Awash with Dollars. Alistair McLeod, Ivan Bebek, and Michael Oliver are this week's guests. History tells us that an ounce of gold has retained 100% of its purchasing power since at least as far back as the Roman Empire. But what price of gold should we expect when the Fed responds to the next financial crisis by creating exponentially more dollars out of thin air than the trillions of fraudulent dollars that were created in the response to the 2008 crisis? 
Alistair McLeod will opine on that topic and other related issues during the second half of today's show. And over the past number of years, while the equity markets have continued to make new highs, gold has been in a very significant correction and basing mode. It has been a very, a very trying time for a lot of the junior exploration companies that I cover, uh, but for the companies that can raise money efficiently during difficult times, weak markets provide tremendous opportunities. Indeed, Ivan Bebek, uh, who will be with me shortly, and his team at Aron have done very well in the past by acquiring quality assets in weak markets. And uh, with Aron being the latest vehicle aimed uh, at repeating his team's past profitable oper- operations and uh, profits that they've managed to generate through exploration development of underpriced assets. I'm really happy to tell you that Ivan Bebek will be with me, as I just said. He'll be uh, with me uh, right after the first commercial break. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again this week. I should tell our listeners that uh, while we ask Michael about gold almost every week, he frequently puts out various timely missives about markets at crucial turning points. And so, uh, this week, we're going to be talking to Michael. Uh, well, he's here with us. We'll hear what he has to say. Michael, thanks for joining me again today. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. You know, you just uh, put out a very interesting missive uh, this morning, it was. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. It was about gold and why uh, it, it may be at a turning point, I believe. Well, it's nearing levels that we think, uh, first off, when you measure things, uh, technically, um, and we do it technically, but also mo- the momentum as opposed to emphasis on price. And uh, so our momentum charts sort of look like price charts, but then they deviate at key levels where price might still be going down and momentum says, nah, nah. And you look at the, the momentum chart and you can see structures just like you would on a price chart, like trend lines, horizontal lines, and so forth, that are clear potential breakout levels. And often those structures will appear on momentum, but not on price. So when you look at the price chart, you can't quite figure out where, where you define an upturn. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you look at momentum, it just jumps off the page at you. It says if you cross that line, you're gone. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. turned. Well, our, this decline in gold really started in January, where we, we basically peaked in January this year, stalled for three or four months, and then started to roll over, finally picked up a little speed. Now we're into the eighth month of a decline on price. For momentum, it's the seventh month because we haven't taken out last month's oscillator lows on monthly momentum of gold, which means that momentum is not agreeing with these marginal new lows this month. Uh-huh. We had a, a sneaking suspicion that the reason for the decline was to finally take out some prior obvious price chart low. In other words, if you go back several years, you'll see an ascending pattern of reaction lows. Well, that's a, that's the call it idiot chart. In other words, no trend continues to produce higher lows. Finally, it needs to go down and kick out a low just mm-hmm. to run some folks out. Finally, we did. The December low of last year was 1236.50. We approached it a month or two ago, just above it, tried not to break it. And I said, they need to break this low. And once you break it, maybe you'll get a little mini panic, you know, a little washout. Well, they did break that low, but they didn't get a washout. Instead, they got a trickle. And what I would like to see, frankly, if, if it, you know, you don't always get what you want. I'd like to see him go down and hit 1,200. Mm-hmm. And uh, the three-year average is at 1,202.9, which we haven't seen in a, almost two years. Fine, that might be support. Uh, some of our long-term momentum charts, 200-week momentum, for example, which is a very long-term metric, not a 200-day, but a 200-week, it has a channel that we're approaching the bottom of. 
So I've got a whole bunch of reasons to assume that this trickle that we're in right now in gold just needs to go just a little bit further, get the 1200 $1, bucks, maybe to 1199 or something to spook somebody, uh, <laughs> and then try the turn from there. It would be optimal for a variety of reasons, and uh, I think it would be exhaustive if we could get there. And so I'm sort of cheering for down ticks, actually, which is, uh, you know. You cheer, you get it over with. You, you kind of do weird things. <laughs> yeah, uh, down, just... Sometimes down ticks are bullish if you do the right thing in the process of the down ticks. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's, anyway, I see gold is probably coming to a halt here shortly, and it won't take but a sneeze on the upside in terms of a price upturn to break mm-hmm. out upside and start back up again. And I'm talking by a sneeze, I mean like a percent. You know, well, you Michael, go up. Go ahead. Yeah, your work uh, several times over the last couple of years has shown a go-to-neutral number. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you indicated that maybe that 1202.9 might be your go-to-neutral yeah, I don't number. want to close the month below the three-year average. I see. Uh, it's not devastating. It's not. I wouldn't call it a negative signal. Uh, but that's a level where I would draw the line and say, okay, if you want to go to, go to neutral on gold, go to neutral. I can't call it a structural breakdown uh, that, that signals annual momentum downturn. <clears throat> but that's a level where I don't mind trading there, but I don't want to close the month below there. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that would be for the folks who want to go to neutral place, I would say go to neutral there or hedge up or whatever you want to do. But I suspect we're going to make a low here in the next days and, and turn from it. And uh, the question then is what's the speed and nature of the upturn? And uh, we'll see. Um, mm-hmm. I, I frankly don't see much resistance in gold if it, once it turns up to you get back up to about 1280 before you find any resistance at all. So if we get a turn underway, it could be uh, quite a few percentage points gained rapidly back on the upside. <clears throat> but right now the downside's still underway, but it is a trickle, and it is boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese water torture for those of us that are yeah, bullish and yeah, want to get going exactly, and make some money. I think money. that's exactly the yeah. best way to phrase it is rather than really dropping sharply, it's trickling down, and the time is the factor that irritates people more than anything. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Michael, just playing the devil's advocate, what would it take for you to turn all of a sudden to change your mind and say, oh, I've got this thing wrong and we're heading down, down, down? Oh, what would it I take for you to get really maybe, bearish maybe on something gold? under 1150. I, I, I've looked at charts and usually major turns in gold, and <clears throat> we've called three of them in 10 years. Uh, we turned bullish in uh, 2009 at the 900 level, and it went to 1900. Then we got bearish uh, in 2012 uh, at, at 1650, stayed bearish for a year or so before it finally collapsed, uh, and then got bullish at uh, 1140 back in February of 2016. But the, each of those turns were really, when you looked at annual momentum, they were clear. I mean, you didn't have to. You didn't have to be a technician to look at the momentum chart and say, "My golly, that's really breaking something mm-hmm. up or down." We don't have that kind of situation right now in gold, where if it goes down, it's really blowing out something <clears throat> that looks like you're, you know, you're blowing up the bridge in the River Kwai or something. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's just not there. It, it doesn't have the normal wherewithal to say, "Okay, that's a sell signal." So that's why the, about the best I can do is go to neutral. And, it, and as you said, there's a fundamental out there, too, and that is gold has a certain reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, first off, commodities don't go to zero. Okay, know that. But gold is, has a different reality even beyond that, and it, it does hold its value. 
And I think its value relationship now to a lot of the paper assets has been stretched uh, down oh, that's to gold. Certain. You know, to, I mean, as you point to, out, you think what, what probably is going to really, uh, what may be, what it may take to really get gold moving will be a breakdown in the equity markets finally. Because, yes. if, you know, if I were an equity player and didn't, wasn't a gold bug like I am, Frankly, the mm-hmm. last thing I'd want to look at is gold right now because, sure. oh, uh, no. you know, as a non-technician, because it's done nothing for people for the last yeah. number of years. Well, uh, but sure, so every day we seem to be seeing new highs in the equity markets. Today's another, I don't know, it's a new high, but it's strong. It's, no, it's it, We're trying to get back to the January high in the S&P. I put out a report the other day on the, uh, c- comparing the 2000 top with the current one in the S&P. And I didn't say it has to turn out the same way, but the behavior is almost exactly the same. You peaked early in the year, you dropped sharply. You spent about five solid months trying to get back to the high. So in the month of August of 2000, you finally got back up to the March high. Mm-hmm. What did you do? You basically, you made a new high monthly close, but not a new high trade. And it, it finally rolled over by the end of the year, down 1250. Now. Uh, in the f- mid-1500s. So it's a very similar type of action. Um, oh. And I, I think the NASDAQ, which has made the new highs, is simply a function of, of our, the well-known FANG stocks. Mm-hmm. Extremely yeah, narrow indeed. leadership. Well, folks, uh, Michael Oliver writes about all of these markets and a lot more that you never hear him talk about on this show. Uh, Consider going to OliverMSA.com, sign up for his uh, newsletter. If you're a serious investor, I think you owe it to yourself. I can tell you that Michael's work is, uh, from my perspective, as a longer-term investor, it's the best I've ever seen. So thanks again for being with us, Michael, and whenever we can grab you, we're going to do it here. Thanks for being with us. Bye-bye. Well, folks, uh, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the commercial break with Ivan Bebek. He's the executive chairman of RN Resources. It's a sponsor of this company. It's a company that I have uh, in my newsletter that I've been covering for a number of years. It's a company that has a management team that's done exceptionally well in the past. I expect that to continue into the future, so I hope you'll stick around to hear what Ivan Bebek has to say right after the commercial break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. 
Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Ivan Bebek. Ivan is the Executive Chairman and Director of R&R Resources. He has over 18 years of experience in financing foreign uh, negotiations, acquisitions in the mineral exploration industry, and he's done extremely well. He and his team have had a very nice track record, have made uh, their, their shareholders a considerable amount of money, even in a bad market. Caden Resources was sold for $205 million, and uh, I think everybody else was losing money. That was one of the few stocks in my newsletter that was up that year. Um, and then, uh, or before that, Keegan Resources, now Asanko, uh, Ivan and his team made even more money, did extremely well for their, for their shareholders. And um, in addition to being a co-founder, uh, he, he was a co-founder of those, of those companies. He's also a co-founder of Arn. Also, uh, Torque Resources is another up-and-coming company that he's uh, that he is a founder of. Arn um, is trading in uh, in New York today at around a dollar one. The last I saw it in U.S. money trades uh, in both in in Canada and U.S. under the symbol AUG. Eighty-six million shares outstanding. Market cap of around uh, ninety million in U.S. funds. A little more than that, of course, in Canadian money. Thanks for joining me again, Ivan. Oh, real pleasure to be back, Jay. Lots to yeah, talk uh, about. It's been a while. Yeah, it's uh, and uh, this is the time of the year. I think, especially with respect to your Committee Bay project, you have a couple of uh, a couple of uh, flagship properties. You got the Committee Bay project, and then you have the Sombrero project in Peru. Uh, I guess I'd like to start out by asking about Committee Bay because this is the time of the year when you can get some real work done. Committee Bay, up in Nunavut, of course, uh, as you said. It's a challenging environment to operate in. You you talked about it last year, having a lot of difficulty logistically getting uh, the labs were filled up, and it was it was tough getting your assays back in a in a good uh, in a good timely manner. But how are things going this year up there at uh, at Committee Bay? Yeah, so it's uh, it's our fourth year going up there, and um, I'll predicate what I'm about to talk about next with a, a fact that's very interesting. I'm not too sure too many people are aware of, but. The last major gold mine that was found in the world that was over 5 million ounces of gold was Amaruk, which was discovered by Agnico Eagle, which happens mm-hmm. to be about 200 kilometers southwest of uh, Committee Bay. And so their deposit, I believe, is in the 6 or 7 gram range. It's approaching 6 or 7 million ounces of gold. And really, that's the target that we have in everything we, we drill up at Committee Bay. And Last year, we spent about um, roughly around $30 million. We drilled about 18 different targets. And we came out of the committee bay with a very good technical discovery called IVIC. It was about 12 meters of four and a half, five grams per ton gold, of which three meters were 18 grams per ton. And, uh, you know, going back and each year we go up, as you've explained, it's not an easy place. It takes a tremendous amount of fortitude, but we did a lot of learning. And uh, coming up here for the fourth year, I, I like to say that you know, we all like to say we think this is going to be the year, but the first time we've ever used a core rig, you know, to follow up on mm-hmm. some of the rab drilling we did last year, which, you know, rab chips, which we drilled last year, like gravel, you know, it's just, it's hard to kind of see the way the structures are going or you uh-huh. know, how much fluids are going through the rocks. And using the core rig this year around IVIC, you know, has been a tremendous enlightenment towards you know, seeing if you're drilling the right potential rock or not. And uh, I'd say that we are, you know, we couldn't be more excited about the progress with the core rig. Uh, We're very encouraged that we're in a good environment. There's a lot of gold, you know, shedding off the surface where we're drilling. There was gold in the Ivic hole. So, 
you know, I think the risk is a bit lower. I also think there's been some major breakthroughs, or there has certainly by our technical team. And uh, what they are seeing is they went back and restudied the 18 targets they drilled last year. And, you know, we kind of came out with this concept at the beginning of the summer that, you know, the resolution of the sampling on surface, the more tighter, dense sampling we did, the more clear the picture got of where we should have been. Um, there's been a few leaps and bounds of revelations from us since we started this program this summer. Uh, the core rig has certainly been a major factor. And so, you know, fingers crossed. But, uh, Jay, this is our, our most productive year in terms of technical breakthroughs. And, uh, you know, we think we have one of, one of the best shots we possibly could have onto getting onto something substantial. And, you know, having the core rig out there is the main reason why I can say that with a lot of confidence right now. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of investors, unless they're really focused on this sector and the exploration sector, don't really understand the amount of science that goes into these discoveries these days. And so, obviously, with a limited amount of time to work at Committee Bay, at least while you're exploring, um, you know, it, it takes a little longer. But uh, obviously, you have a tremendous technical team with you, Ivan, and I have the yeah. fullest of confidence that you'll nail this thing eventually. What uh, What are your – so, just in summing, what is your – what are your um, objectives this year for Committee Bay, essentially? So what we'd like to see and what we've done with our drill program is obviously we followed up on the discovery hole. Um, I think we're going to drill about 20 holes around it, you know, within a 500 to 700 meter long stretch. And mm-hmm. if those holes come back and if the system is there, I think that it'll be a lot more than a singular hit. And we'll, we'll have a very productive result that the whole market will understand, not just the geologist, right? We've also mm-hmm. stepped away from IVIC with the RAB rig. We did drill our Kalulik target, and we're drilling something called Castle Pebble, as well as Arluk. And uh, we're following up with the RAB rig there because this is, these are areas that we were close to it, but we hadn't hit the main source last year. We weren't quite on it. And uh, I'll say, you know, as, as far as that goes, uh, Jay, the, the $40 million we spent and the three years of studying Committee Bay has come to a much more elevated understanding of what's happening up there. And hopefully we see it on at least one or two more targets besides IVIC. But if IVIC delivers on the core holes that we're drilling, then uh, it'll be enough to say we're off to the races convincingly for all of our shareholders and, and everybody who's watching this program. And one last thing I'll say, and this is very important for everyone to understand, uh, you know, having two successes under our belts with the discovery of Keegan's 5 million ounce deposit and with Caden, you know, um, one thing I will say is that the size of what we're going after is astronomically bigger than anything we've chased before. And if you're mm-hmm. going to find something that big, you're going to have to pay your dividends in terms of learning and, and speculating and, it's not going to come easy or else everybody would be doing it and there'd be all holes sure. in the belt all the way with mines, right? So I, I, think we've, I think we've gone as far as we can go. You know, we'll see how this year turns out. And uh, I think we have a tremendous shot. So, yes, we're not drilling. We're drilling a third of what we drilled last year in meterage, but the mm-hmm. focus of where we're drilling and the knowledge we have behind these holes, it's something that if you're a new investor, you're coming in after a lot of heavy lifting has been done in terms of learning, or if you're mm-hmm. an existing investor that's frustrated with the weak gold market, you have your best shot that you've had as a shareholder in the company. And uh, very excited. So I, I think, you know, for me, I'm expecting some kind of a, a big result out of Committee Bay this fall. Um, we do expect assays to start coming out to the market in September. Uh, the way we've done our assay program this year, instead of sending individual holes one at a time out of Committee Bay, 
for the efficiency of cost, uh, we've decided to send them in batches. So um, it's just not not it, it's laborsome to go hole by hole to fly them out to Whitehorse and, and prepare them and send them to the assay lab. So we're going to do batches of about ten to fifteen holes at a time. And the first announcement would be sometime after Labor Day, so probably between now and mid-September. And uh, we'll see how that goes. But, uh, you know, news is around the corner. We can't wait to get the assays, you know, we, based on what we've run to date. And uh, we've got a tremendous shot. And so we're excited. Absolutely. Well, that's your uh, one of two flagship properties. You have a, a whole portfolio of projects, but there's two in particular that you really focus on. We just You just gave us a, a summary of Committee Bay. What about Sombrero down in Peru? That's a copper, gold, scar, and porphyry target. Uh, what's going on down there? So this project is a spectacular project, and it's a lot easier than Committee Bay because a lot of the rocks are outcropping. Unlike Committee Bay, a lot of them are undercover, right? And so we've trenched some remarkable trenches. Um, we did it. They were very good widths. Fairly uh, mediocre grade in terms of the average world grade of copper and uh, plus gold, so that brings it up. But importantly, these were trenches that were done way away from the target. We're talking 500 to 1,000 meters away from the target. And having a closer look at those rocks, the trenches occurred in the weathered rock. And so what we're learning is that the fresh rock would likely have a dramatically higher uh, grade of copper and gold in it. So Mm -hmm. for us, you know, pre-drilling, you know, not only is what we've seen so far spectacular. I mean, you're seeing gold grades up to 195 grams per ton, copper grades up to 17% uh, copper. We have a canyon that's cut by a river that's about three kilometers north of where we've done the bulk of our work. And we get a chance to see 400 meters down what's happening in the rocks. And if you look at our press releases in the summer or the one we've had so far, and there's more coming here in the near term, uh, you're going to see that the mineralization goes all the way down a depth. And so when you have copper and gold all over the surface have a cliff that gives you, and there's actually added some historical miners in the cliff. It gives you the third dimension, which is depth. Um, you start to get very excited that you're onto a big system. Uh, the project's located 200 kilometers west of Las Bombas. Las Bombas was bought for $7.3 billion the same year that Caden was bought. Yes, it was at mm-hmm. a, a mature stage, more of a, a deposit that became a mine. But um, it was a copper molly deposit. And as you move 200 kilometers west to our Sombrero project, you're seeing copper gold. And obviously gold is worth a lot more than molybdenum. But uh, same rocks. Scale of system is very comparable from what we can see. And then we staked another 80,000 hectares south of us, uh, mm. which we carefully and proprietarily screened while we were getting on to Sombrero North. We call this Sombrero South. And, you know, we think we've acquired an entire belt that could replicate or not replicate specifically, but it could come up with some major deposits such as Las Bombas, Tintaya, Anticapai, some of Peru's largest famous porphyries and scarring deposits. And uh, we're seeing a lot of gold and copper in the drainages off the ground that we have acquired. And so we look very forward to putting together a comparable major copper gold district, much like Committee Bay up north, but in an area where you have surface access and you have surface exposure in more places, so lower risk. But these two flagship projects, Jay, these are the kind of things that will shape your career, if you're right. Uh, they will make a world impact in terms of how big they are if they do come together. And I'll make another comment. This is an important one. A year before we sold Caden, our share price was $0.67 cents per share. Uh, from a $2 share price that it traded at a year before that. 
The market was horrible. It was the toughest market we've been in, and things couldn't have been better with Aiden. And a year later, we sold it for three forty-eight per share to Agnico Eagle. And if you held your Agnico Eagle shares, they doubled after that, so you got seven dollars per share. Ironically, at the peak technical understanding and, and level of confidence that a transaction might occur, we were at our lowest share price with Caden. This is eerily familiar to where Orin is right now. We have peak understanding on Committee Bay. We have a dramatically new, and you'll see it soon in press releases, understanding of what's going on at Sombrero. The scale is, is way bigger than anything we've ever done before, and I think it'll be globally significant because I don't hear of anyone else finding these major deposits. And I think that this is the kind of things that can make the returns that everybody would dream for in the natural resource marketplace, right? But our share price is trading at two and a half, three year low. And so, I know. <laughs> you know, we're patient. We're, we're patient. We're not happy about it, but there's not much we can do. And, and listening to the gold commentaries, um, you know, I'd have to say as a gold bull, fine, but unbiasedly or biasedly, I believe there's going to be a tremendous reversal in the gold price. I think you're seeing, you know, record no interest in the gold place, record shorts and so on and whatnot. It's the lowest level of interest in the gold place we've seen in a long time. And historically, that's been the pivotal turns where we've seen some major reverses. But um, right. not too worried about the gold price, more worried about if we have the world's next major gold mine or gold yeah. and copper deposit down in Peru. And, and I'd say that our confidence level has never been higher and our share price has never been lower, unfortunately. Well, you certainly you certainly have a shot. We're running out of time here, uh, Ivan, but let me just ask you, uh, not your biggest target, but perhaps your most advanced project is the Homestake Ridge project. Uh, what, what are you planning to do with that this uh, this year? We, we just only have a couple of minutes left, and then I'd like you to tell yeah. us what investors should really be looking forward to in summing up. So uh, Homestake Ridge, we're about to start drilling it. Um, we, re- we announced the financing about two weeks ago for $4.6 million. Uh, heavy demand. We've increased that financing to $7.2 million, which covers Homestake Ridge drilling. We're going to drill about 3,000 meters. You'll see an announcement to that starting here in the next few days once the mm-hmm. drills start turning. Uh, Committee Bay, Gibson-McCoy work is all financed by that financing. So our general working capital gives us about a year of G&A. And uh, we're just waiting to get drill permits in Peru. What shareholders should look forward to? Um, I'd say that I'd start with Committee Bay results in September. Um, there may be an asset sale or two out of the company if the right price is reached on some of the smaller assets, but advanced assets that we have. But mm-hmm. ultimately, you're going to get a Committee Bay home strike ridge drill results. You might see an asset sale or two into the fall. And um, then the, the most exciting drill program I think Peru's seen in a long time with Sombrero Drilling, which likely gets permitted and ready to drill the end of this year or January, February of next year. So I'd say we have about four or five press releases coming ahead here in the next 30 days. And some of them include a lot more results out of Peru and most excitingly, mm-hmm. uh, the drill results out of Committee Bay that will come out by mid-September. But a very exciting time for us as we head into uh, hopefully a much better fall gold market. No doubt about it. I just uh, should mention to our listeners that I think it's close to 50% of your stock is owned between management and a couple of institutions, the biggest institution being Gold Corp. Are they, uh, are they participating in your upcoming financing, the one that you just recently announced? Um, you, we've, we've increased the financing to 7.2, and um, I think once that financing completes, which should be on Friday or Monday of next week, then uh, the answer will be public for everybody. But 
you know, I think we're doing great things and I would have every reason to believe that uh, they might potentially uh, participate. So, um, yeah, you know, I think things have gone well. I think the work that we're doing by the technical team we're doing and the scope of what we might find is consistently uh, been, you know, above par. And I think that's, that's working well. I can't speak for them until it's out, but I think shareholders will see in the next few days how that, how that worked out for us. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ivan. It's a, it is a very exciting story, even though the market doesn't seem to care much right now. That's the best time to make money, uh, is to buy them when no one else wants them, or to buy quality projects, quality companies, and, and certainly based on Ivan's uh, and his team's track record, this is one you don't want to ignore. Thanks so much for being with us, Ivan, and we'll look to do it again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Thanks very much, right. I really appreciate it. All right, folks, well, we do have to take a break now. Uh, don't go away. Alistair McLeod will be with us. We're going to have some very interesting things to talk about. How do you value gold in a market, in a world that's awash in dollars? Don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm very pleased to have with me once again Alistair McCloud. Alistair has a background as a stockbroker, banker, and economist. He is a senior fellow at the Gold Money Foundation and head of research at Gold Money. His weekly articles written for Gold Money are posted there at goldmoney.com. In fact, I've had... uh, I found Alistair's articles written from a free market perspective to be highly logical, and and the insights that he provides are very unique. I would say, um, quite unique, and you're not seeing them that uh, those those insights express that widely. And so it's it's always valuable to have somebody who brings new ideas and and a, a fresh look of things. That's why I'm really happy to uh, tell you that Alistair is with me again. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. It's really good to talk to somebody uh, thousands of miles away across the pond, and um, I, I really uh, want to ask you about your valuing gold in a world awash with dollars, but uh, to set the stage for that discussion, 
I'd like you to talk about something that you've really helped us with in the past, and that's the credit cycle. You know, it's not a business cycle. It's a credit cycle, per se. It's everything is driven by money pumped into the system or taken out. Not much of it is usually taken out. A lot more going in constantly than coming out. Uh, but tell us, uh, give us an update of where we are in the credit cycle. I, I believe we're nearing the, the end of it, and, and what does that pretend for the future? Uh, yes, um, I, I think we are uh, towards the end. Uh, the symptoms that uh, suggest that to me is that not only have we got full employment, uh, price inflation for what it's worth, and it's always an inaccurate number, is yeah. above the Fed's target. Uh, the Fed does recognize that it's got to tighten. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, it, it's 2% uh, inflation target is going to get left behind. Um, you've got full, full employment. They're also looking at President Trump and saying, you know, hold on a minute, we've got this huge, great uh, 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 deficit um, uh, as a result of uh, lower taxes and higher government spending. This is going to be an injection into the economy. I think they're probably also looking at the effect of tariffs, which is going to put up prices. So in that sense, it is price inflationary. Um, the Fed actually has quite a lot on its plate, uh, and it, it's, it's all happening at the very mature stage of the credit cycle, and I think it's going to hasten uh, the end of this mature phase. Um, just to sort of recap very, very quickly, um, mm -hmm. the credit cycle starts from the last crisis. We get over the last crisis, and we get over it because basically the Fed chucks money at the problem, stops everybody going bust, rescues the banks. Um, tells the banks not to foreclose on anyone if they can possibly avoid it, and so on and so on. Public confidence is very, very low. The result is that uh, most of the money that is printed and the bank credit that is expanded doesn't find its way initially into the economy. It finds it way, its way into assets so that you see government securities rising in price, yields falling. You see equities beginning to move better on the back of that comparative valuation with the U.S. Treasuries. You then get property prices beginning to pick up. And all this because the yields um, uh, uh, for conventional assets uh, are high relative to zero interest rates. Mm -hmm. um, that then continues to develop and money begins to seep from, uh, um, if you like, the, the financial uh, side of the economy into the production side of the economy. And it's uh, nowadays it's not just production, it's also consumers because a lot of it is in uh, the bank credit expansion goes into consumer finance. So um, uh, you get to a point where prices do begin to rise. Now, unless the Fed... Um, in fact, the Fed can't actually do anything to stop it. Uh, all it can try and do, perhaps, is to try and get interest rates in step with what's going on in the economy. That's what the Fed is trying to do. So the rise that we're seeing in interest rates is clearly a signal to me that we are in that very mature phase of uh, the credit cycle. Um, and what happens after that, I'm afraid, is another credit crisis. It is as sure as night follows day. It is sure as you get a spring tide every two weeks. Um, if you live on the sea, you know what that means. <laughs> so um, uh, it, it, is, it is a fact of life, and it's the one thing that central banks cannot prevent. Um, they actually create the credit cycle. 
um, it's partly them and it's partly the banks that they, re they, they look after, that they regulate. Um, the expansion of bank credit uh, is something that happens and fuels uh, the credit cycle from about sort of mid-stage onwards. Um, mm -hmm. We now have this credit cycle in a very mature situation. I think that you will see in uh, the coming months, and it's a matter of months, uh, you'll see that inflation will uh, rise even further. I think you will find that um, uh, the interest rate outlook, again, people will be talking about, well, the Fed's got to have a, a you know yet another one um, next month uh, when it wasn't expected before, that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that the timing for the credit cycles end, which is the crisis, is mm -hmm. likely to be sometime between the last quarter of this year and the end of the first half of 2019. That's what I've penciled in at the moment. Now, there's not a lot of time uh, uh, with that earlier date. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just that the way I see things developing, the way I see the, uh, uh, the, the, the you know, sort of tariffs, the likelihood of tariffs coming in, that getting worse, uh, the way in which government spending has rocketed up without the tax cover, uh, mm -hmm. which is an enormous stimulus, uh, uh, stimulant, if you like, into mm -hmm. the economy at the time, at the worst possible time. Mm -hmm. uh, I, think, I, th I think that it's going to just hurry things up quite mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so that's 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 that. Now, what happens after that? Of course, we embark on another cycle. But yeah. um, these things are always different from last time round. Uh, and uh, one of the points, which actually is what gold is all about, mm -hmm. is that we still have an enormous hangover of cash within the banking system. We're talking. I'm by cash. I mean physical cash. Um, uh, checking accounts and mm -hmm. uh, deposit accounts. Um, that at the moment is around about $12.8 trillion. Wow. Um, it's roughly something I can't remember. I think I worked out the figure, something like 70% of GDP. Uh, whereas um, at the time of the last credit crisis, it was about 35% of GDP. So wow. you can see that uh, the, um, we have, we're going to go into the next credit crisis with a huge amount of dollars washing around the system. Mm -hmm. What does the Fed do? How does it rescue the economy next time round? Well, the answer is quite simple. It chucks money at the problem. Mm -hmm. But there is already so much money in the, in, in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in the system. So you're going to get more money on top of it. I mean, we can easily see that, um, uh, you know, if I'm right about 2018, 2019, uh, you could easily see that by the time the, um, we get to close on 2020, that um, we have more than the GDP in cash. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's completely bizarre, but that's, that is where, where we're going. Well, it's incredible if you get that much cash sitting around in the banking system uh, and, and the banks uh, have started lending, as you pointed out, at a certain point in the credit cycle, it becomes advantageous for banks to sell their their treasuries and start using the cash to start making loans. I guess that process is very much uh, in place. And of course, you have the multiplier effect, right, that can really accelerate the amount of money and the amount of demand for goods and services that are out there, right? Yes, yes, you can. Um, I, th th there is another aspect of this which um, I think is very concerning, uh, and that is that at the time when the banks should be uh, lending money to business, um, mm -hmm. uh, actually what's happening is that uh, Donald Trump is asking for yet more money from the banks. 
um, mm-hmm. one way or the other. It, okay, I mean, the banks may not directly buy bonds, but um, uh, they will be financing people who will buy bonds. Yeah. I suspect that that um, will be cured in one way, and that is that uh, foreign central banks will be persuaded to buy each other's government's debt. That I can see happening if yields start rising too much. Mm-hmm. Um I just I can't see I can't see where all the buyers are going to come from for uh, this enormous uplift in government debt that I can see uh, over the next um, uh, you know sort of six months or so. Maybe the government's going to tell us uh, as little people that we have to buy uh, treasuries, or uh, maybe they're going to take our four hundred one ks and tell us we have to buy. Who knows? Governments who, who uh, knows? Wh- yeah who knows where it's going, but. But where do you see the breaking point then? I mean, you think the credit crisis is coming. Uh, you know, we're up close to 3% on the 10-year uh, treasuries here in the U.S. I mean, we have so much debt, as you point out, that the service charge, the cost of servicing that debt for the federal government is enormous. And, of course, corporations have taken advantage of low-priced money to go out and buy their stock back, and they put they put debt on the balance sheets of corporations. I guess that's not the primary concern, but it's all, all sort of comes together. Uh, Alistair, normally what happens when we have these credit, credit collapses, as we had in 2008, 2009, you have the world's reserve currency, the, the senior currency, the dollar, gets stronger because it is, you know, there's more debt in dollars than, ever, than any other currency. So when the system starts to go into reverse, when defaults start to occur, uh, then people have to sell whatever they're able to sell to buy dollars. It forces the dollar up in value. Do you see that happening again in the next cycle, in the next, uh, you know, end of this year, early next year? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I mean, you are right that in the past this has been the case. Um, this is something which many people have written about recently, uh, something called uh, the Triffin Dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Triffin, Robert Triffin was a, a, an economist, a Belgian-American economist, who uh, pointed out that uh, the reserve currency, the, the issuer of the country that issues the reserve currency has to run a trade deficit, which means a budget deficit, because the two things are interlinked, uh, in order to create the uh, currency required uh, for it to operate as, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as, as, as the international currency, the mm-hmm yardstick for all the others and all the rest of it. Now, that is fine to a point. Um, It's fine so long as the amount of currency that is actually produced for export um, is uh, still demanded. But we now have a situation where, uh, and I point this out in the article which you referred to, where the cumulative US dollar capital flows quite clearly show that uh, the foreigners are up to their necks in dollars. They've got more dollars than they need. Now, if we go back to the crisis, when the crisis happens, what you do is not quite what you said. What you do is you get rid of the foreign stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if let's say you're a Malaysian corporation, uh, you you know, the government, if if nobody else and your shareholders are going to tell you, you protect your home business. You do mm-hmm. not protect the international stuff so the first thing you do basically is you get rid of the foreign stuff 
Now, in the past, what has happened is that multinationals have many, many currencies uh, on their books. Mm -hmm. What they have done is they've got rid of everything else except the dollar, because that's mm -hmm. the one thing which they probably need for, to pay for their international loans, the interest, and all, and all the rest of it. So, um, but now, uh, uh, I, what I can see is that um, there are so many dollars around that people have got so many i mean they've just got too 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 much of the stuff mm -hmm. and on a crisis they're bound to get rid of the dollar i mean it, it, just looking at the uh, uh the figures that the u.s treasury produ uh, mm -hmm. produces um the net foreign uh, investment in u.s dollars um uh between 2009 and 2017 was just mm -hmm. under nine trillion dollars mm -hmm. net u.s investment abroad which is the other way uh, has mm -hmm. actually contracted. So yeah. in other words, uh, U.S. corporations have already um, reduced their exposure abroad, mm -hmm. and that's contracted by about $155 billion. Mm -hmm. You've got a balance of trade in goods and services, which over that period is $3.7 trillion, mm -hmm. which means that their net capital flows unaccounted for work out at about $5 trillion. Now, mm -hmm. Compare that with the previous credit cycle, 2003, yeah. 2008, and uh, it was only 462 billion. So yeah, we have got more than something 10 times. like yeah. uh, more than 10 times, about 12 yeah. times, exactly yeah. that. Now, if you look at the notes, um, sort of digging down in the numbers which uh, uh, the Treasury produce, um, there's something which is supplemental to Table One um, is foreign investors' dollar liquidity, uh, which exhibit. 19, uh, 19T in U.S. portfolio holdings of foreign securities as of June 2017 is recorded as an extra 4.217 trillion. Huh. So what we can see is that the unaccounted bit, in other words, what is not actually invested uh -huh. um, uh, in, in, in foreigners' hands, which we worked out should be a figure around about 5 trillion, we can see that 4.217 of that is actually cash. Wow. It's, you know, it's sitting there um, in the U.S. banks as cash, beneficial owners, non-U.S. corporations. So, you know, who, what's going to happen on the next um, uh, uh, credit crisis? The mm -hmm. answer is that you've got, you've got a tsunami of 4.27 tr trillion uh, of dollars, uh, mm -hmm. which are going to be sold. Yeah, sure, because these companies have to take have to take care of their own their own issues first. I mean, they're not concerned about helping the United States necessarily. And I'm wondering also when you talk about Triffin's dilemma, if some of Trump's policies, the tariffs, uh, his uh, pressures on NATO, for example, and even the reversal of the Iranian uh, deal that Obama struck, whether they might not actually also reduce uh, the dollars held by foreigners. It seems to me that was what it, I mean, clearly Trump is trying to uh, is trying to pay back the people that voted for him in middle America, bring manufacturing jobs back and so forth. Do you think that fits into the story of Triff's dilemma as well? I mean, in terms of what you're talking about? Yeah, making, yes, it, make, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, it does. It, it does, Jay. I mean, um, we're now sort of walking into the realm of, uh, of geopolitics, I think. Yeah, sure. um, I mean, particularly with the Iranian situation. Uh, the, the Iranians export oil to China. Uh, China has set up an oil yuan futures contract, which will allow uh, countries uh, like um, Iran and, uh, and, and various others uh, to sell um, uh, uh, oil to China, bypass the dollar entirely, and then... 
I believe what will happen is that they will be attracted by a matching contract uh, where they can uh, turn their yuan into into gold mm. and just stand for delivery. And the two um, exchanges where uh, uh, gold futures in yuan are priced are Hong Kong and Dubai. Um, I would think that uh, the Americans are going to lean on Dubai. Dubai probably won't be able to take part of this, but they can't lean on China. And mm -hmm. incidentally, another part of this is that the European Union is is refusing to go along with um, uh, American sanctions. Mm -hmm. um, In Iran. So, so actually, yeah. So actually, what's happening is that um, the uh, Europeans are saying to their companies, "We'll protect you as much as we can," but as we saw today. Uh, Daimler-Benz, um, you know, have had to take a decision, which is more important, our American business or our Iranian business? Mm -hmm. And the answer is their American business. So they're cutting their Iran link, which is actually pretty much what um, uh, Donald Trump is trying to get going. Mm -hmm. But he won't be able to stop the Chinese buying their oil, um, paying in, in yuan, mm -hmm. They can stop the dollars, and when it comes to uh, banning them, uh, uh, banning anyone selling them gold or other precious metals, as it's as it's described, um, I, you know, they can't tell China uh, yeah. where to get off on this one, or or the Asian exchanges. Uh, so um, it looks to me as if this could backfire, and it could generate some demand for physical gold on the basis that it will be delivered against an oil yuan contract which is turned into a yuan gold contract yeah I, I saw today it was limit up for the petro yuan so the very day that we uh, that the uh, sanctions were placed on iran again uh, uh alistair with just a couple of minutes left here i want you to talk just briefly as, as succinctly as you can about the paper gold markets and how this what we're just talking about the petro yuan could be one aspect of breaking that and what happens to what extent do you think the paper markets have suppressed price discovery of uh, the price of gold? I mean, what, what we want to try to understand is how do you price gold in a world of Washington dollars? So with a couple of minutes left, could you just sort of summarize our, our, our topic today uh, by talking about that? Yes, sure. Um, you know, various uh, um, analysts uh, like the World Gold uh, Council, for example, uh, look at um, supply and demand in terms of physical gold. And mine supplies around about uh, 3,000 tons a year. Uh, you've got a further 750 tons of scrap, which is regarded as supply in the market. But this is nothing, absolutely nothing compared uh, with what goes on in the uh, paper markets. I mean, if you look at the LBMA, the uh, tonnage delivered, and this is delivered at end of day annually on the LBMA uh, for this last year, was over 150,000 tons. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it has been, I mean, go back to 1999 when the gold price was very low, it was up close to a quarter of a million tons. Mm -hmm. the, these are huge, huge figures. Um, uh, you know, so, so 3,000 tons, what's that? It's absolutely nothing. nothing. You've got, yeah, yeah, exactly. You've got the forward market, which is, which as far as the Bank of International Settlements is concerned, is called um, an over-the-counter derivative. You have got markets like COMEX. Um, you have got, uh, you know, the physical stuff. You've got all the turnover, which isn't uh, recorded of people buying and selling physical gold between themselves. I mean, the supply and demand um, uh, situation is, just absolutely crazy and yeah. uh, the the advent of derivatives basically suppresses the price because um you know you, you know anyone can 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 with enough uh, clout you know for example mm -hmm. the fed or um you know a major bank can go in and sell uh, say 
to 5,000 contracts on COMEX, something like that, bang the price. Um, you know, and, and basically, they're, they're, they're dealing in more than the annual uh, uh, physical supply. So you can see which, you know, mm-hmm. what's being wagged. The dog is being wagged by the tail, if you like, right. big right. time. And that's always been the situation and will continue until such time as we do get a big credit crisis. A big credit crisis in which people no longer want dollars or other fiat currency, but demand physical gold, I guess. That's what you're talking about, right? Yep, I think that's the consequence of the next crisis because of the amount of dollars that are awash in the system. And there is just another little thing which I'll drop in at this last moment, and that mm-hmm. is the next credit crisis will occur for the first time when there are cryptocurrencies around. Uh-huh. The amount of speculative move into cryptocurrencies could be, I say could be, because obviously nothing is certain, absolutely enormous and could be another destabilizing factor. All right. I hope we can talk to you about that sometime in the future. We are out of time. Thank you so much, Alistair, for being with us once again. Folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, I'll be uh, talking to Andrew McGuire, talking about the futures markets, and uh, Chris Taylor of Great Bear Resources, hopefully Michael Oliver as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bonterra Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling, where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol BONXF. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. Entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe.